apologies in advance if you can hear the torrential downpour we have going on here. I can't really do much about the weather yet, so I just, sorry, we're just going to have to kind of live with that. Also, I should mention something. Obviously, I won't get these comments for uh, over a year at this point, given how far in advance I record these. And I, thanks to my schedule, I don't really have a lot of ability. But if you're wondering why the lighting keeps changing, like every episode, it's because I'm still fiddling with it bit by bit, trying to improve it. Uh, I've actually consulted a few people, including Lower Loaded, but also, you know, actual uh, experts and lighting people and camera people and trying to improve the overall approach. Uh, the bottom line that we've ham hammered out is that until I'm willing to shell out several hundred dollars in order to try and completely change my camera system, and I would have to have a camera and a, tr a setup for it, and I'd have to completely rearrange things physically. And basically, that's why it would be several hundred dollars. This is probably as good as it's getting. I do have some new lights that are showing up in about two days, though. And so that'll be another time where we'll try to fiddle with the lighting setup and see if we can get any better. So I hope you guys can bear with me on all this. So this episode was originally put out by Ralph Sinensky. I've actually mentioned him before. Or no, I'm sorry, Jerry Soul. Jerry Soul. Let me get the right name here. Um, he wrote Corbomite Maneuver, and he will later write Whom Gods Destroy. He put out an interesting treatise, which he was really unhappy with the changes to it, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. His original idea had more to do with the spores that were, like, changing people and making them be on... Uh, well, PCP is the direct reference that was made, a psychedelic drug. You'll notice there is still a reference to psychedelics in the episode, and of course, they're freaking spores. Uh, changes were made by DC Fontana. Now, Miss Fontana, this is actually the episode in which she became story editor for. Uh, she, she was handed the story to do some rewrites, and she argued for a couple changes. And basically, Gene Ronbray said, tell you what, you managed to make this, you know, do a good job of this rewrite, you can go ahead and have the job, which she did, and she did. This also kind of shows that Miss Fontana, I, I don't want to give her too much credit, I, I keep saying that, but the woman definitely had her finger on the pulse of Star Trek in a way that arguably I'd say only Gene Kuhn really also had his finger on the pulse of what Star Trek is uh, at, this at this point in history, specifically, and, and around this era when this was being made. Because she looked at this and said, okay, okay, the love story needs to be Spock. And everyone was like, what? And nobody was real with her on that, including Nimoy, I might add. Everyone was like, what? No. And she's like, no, trust me. Trust me. We need this, guys. So she structured it, she played it, and they, they filmed it, and they were like, you were totally right. Because she was. She was right, in my opinion, of course. I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts. But in my opinion, this really helped to showcase uh, Spock in a way that hadn't really been done yet. Oh, sure, he has no emotions. Remember how much they kept hammering that point on in the early episodes. But this actually shows the direct consequence of that and shows it in a very personal way by giving him this direct connection to Layla. Leela? Hmm. But I'm getting a little bit off topic. Although, funny little story, Jill Ireland, who plays uh, Leela, Layla, I don't remember her damn name. <laughs> Just watch this episode. Uh, she's... See, the problem is I know someone in real life named Layla, so my mind is automatically correcting to that, and I can't remember if they say it as Leela or Layla in the episode. It doesn't help that sometimes they pronounce it inconsistently. Anyways, but... The woman who plays... <laughs> Jill Ireland, who plays her... This is actually funny. She had to go to Mr. Thice, you know, the costume guy, in order to get her outfit. And she was apparently very nervous and worried about this. Why? 
Well, because she'd seen some of the outfits he'd done, including the one for Andrea back in uh, What Are Little Girls Made Of? Yeah, I don't blame her on that. But no, he, he put her in something relatively simple and thing. And she was like, oh, okay, whew. It just goes to show that while he is certainly known for doing the, hey, check out that one, uh, nevertheless, he is capable of doing other costumes. And I, I mean, that sounds like a duh. He did the stuff for the Gorn, for example. It's just nice to be reminded of it every now and again, even when it comes to a female character. So, we've got our episode. Uh, we've got the idea here of the hive mind. Oh, I did mention Ralph uh, Sineski earlier. This is actually a, a Hallmark episode because he became our third main director. So we already have Mark Daniels and uh, Joseph Pen uh, Pevney, right? Those were our two recurring uh, directors. They called them rotators. And... Ralph became the third one. So those three will direct the overwhelming majority of all of TOS from this point onwards. We'll still get a few guest directors, and I'll point them out as we go. But otherwise, if you've watched this episode of Star Trek, it's probably from one of those two. Um, so we've got this planet. We've colonized it with 150 people. Why so few? I, I mean, I, I, I don't remember the exact number of the absolute bare minimum... Uh, population necessary for a good gene pool. I, I forget the exact number. The people in real life have done the math. It's actually a pretty small number, but that also presumes certain things about exact, like there has to be a pattern of how they breed in order to ensure that genetics are fine. You know, the actual estimated amount is closer to the four-digit range. So I'm, I'm just wondering, is this a thing where they were setting up a colony and then more people were going to show up later? Like these are the founders kind of a thing? I'm actually curious. I'm not, I'm not nitpicking here. I'm just curious what the intention was. Either way, we have Berthold Rays. Now, this is, this is a strange one. Uh, these are actually referenced much later. Uh, thanks to you, the Calamarine, for that. The episode never says it outright, but the implication is that the colonists knew there was this deadly radiation and they still decided to settle here. Why? Of, of all the places you could settle in a galaxy with tons and tons of locales, why settle here? And at first I was thinking, that's, this is really stupid. But then I really got to thinking about it. Let me, let me use a weird analogy. You ever play Mega Man? I, I know most of you probably haven't in all honesty, but I love Mega Man. It's probably one of my favorite video game series ever. And it just clicks with me in a great way. Uh, so much so that one of the things I like to do is I like to challenge myself. And obviously speedrunning is a thing, but usually I do challenge runs in Mega Man. Don't get hit, or only you know do this section under this way and don't use the tools. Or, my personal favorite, Buster Only. Don't use any of the special weapons, right? If you don't are familiar with the franchise, all of those things just artificially limit me in ways that aren't necessary to increase the challenge factor, which increases my enjoyment. And you see where I'm going with this. Now, granted, that's a video game, not life and death. But actually, I could see the mentality perfectly. In fact, this lines up perfectly with what happens at the end of the episode, too, where he's, when the, the guy who's in charge of the colony gets angry and gets in the fight and gets cured of the spores, his reaction is, we haven't done anything. We haven't built anything. We were here to make a garden, and all we've accomplished is wasting time. Now, I was, I was actually looking at that like, well, that's weird. There's nothing wrong with what they've accomplished here unless they were doing it for the challenge. If they were specifically seeking this out as a challenge, as a Buster-only run, then imagine if you go down to play a Buster-only run of Mega Man, and all of a sudden the game gives you, like, infinite lives, and, you know, save states, and just whatever other cheats, and it's like, well, the, 
The challenge is gone. What's the point now? Right? Just interesting to think about. It's still kind of stupid because they actually make a point of saying that there is no technology they have any knowledge or access to to prevent, the, prevent that radiation. So there's a difference between challenge and I want to settle on the surface of the sun, which is kind of the equivalent of what they say here. But I can at least get the idea as presented. It's just something that they didn't think through as fully as they could. Maybe they should have made it so that, you know, the radiation is dangerous but can be blocked by certain things, or maybe there's ways to mitigate its effects, and therefore that's why the people are on the colony, and that's why they're checking up on them, because, holy crap, they might have died. All it would take is one random, you know, issue or one random famine, and that would be the end of that, right? Anyways, minor, minor nitpick and an otherwise interesting and fascinating premise. You have to notice, by the way, the fact that people are alive is the big dun-dun-dun leading into the credits. That's always funny when that's true. You should be dead. So, this is actually interesting. The idea that the spores deal with the radiation at first irritated the crap out of me. But then I got to thinking about it. That's not as off-bounds as it otherwise could be. Oh, don't mistake me, radiation in general is this horrifically damaging thing, but also there's a lot of different types of radiation. So this might not be just the general bathing every cell in your body with nightmare death kind of radiation that you know I usually think of when it comes to radiation. So maybe the spores just kind of seep it into them and use it to sustain themselves, and thus it never really enters the people's bodies. This kind of makes a degree of sense, although it never explains why the pores are literally regenerative, but I'll get to that in a minute. So we have... Uh, I wanted to give praise for this episode, too. I'm going to be doing a lot of praise for this episode, actually. I rather like this one. This is... I've talked many times about the budget issues and how they had to reuse old sets and reuse old locations. It basically, try to keep the feasibility and the practicality on the down low because they didn't have much budget and it's old sci-fi and they're constantly having the producers and executives breathe down their necks, right? So, other than the Parallel Earths thing, we've had time travel, we've had uh, places that are, you know, recently developed, and now we have colonies, Earth colonies, as yet another place to go to where we can reuse old sets in order to keep the budget on the down low. I just wanted to point out another excellent example of, of applying that same concept. This is something that TNG would do with its holodeck, by the way, as I've talked about before, to pretty much this exact same effect. The holodeck can show old sets that already exist and keep the budget low, which was let's be honest, probably critical when it came to Season 1 and keeping that budget down. Anyways, so we have this ideal agricultural planet. Wait, that makes no sense. They mentioned this absolutely lush soil, but does the radiation make the soil super lush? Is that how that works? I, 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 whatever. I don't know botany. Worth the damn, so I'm just going to move on from that one. We have... This is yet another time, by the way. This is not the first or second time, and this will not the last time. They've brought up the idea, we've tried to get away from machines. You know, we want to have less complex machines. We want to have, um, you know, ideas of... Uh, if you take away... If you make a, make a machine to do the work of a man, you take away from the man. It's the frickin' insurrection thing all over again, except slightly before insurrection came out. I'm just fascinated to see how often this cropped up back in TOS. I admittedly don't have a huge finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist of United States in the late 60s, other than the obvious reactions to Vietnam and how that infected culture and society. 
along with the reactions to World War II, which we're still feeling the interactions of that one to this very day, at least in terms of our culture. So I don't really know if there was this big anti-tech thing. I mean, I know there's the hippie movement, but I don't know if there's this big, you know, we need to get away from technology. Hang on, let me check my phone to see if there's anything about that. Oh, wait, I'm just messing around. I apologize. It's just a thing. Maybe it was just something that writers were shopping around at the time. Maybe it's because it's science fiction. One of the things I've noticed is writers, if given the opportunity to write for a setting that is not their own, will often immediately seek to challenge the rules of that setting. You ever notice that? I've noticed that a lot. It's it's probably most visibly obvious when you look at fan fiction, you know, other than romance fan fiction. But you, you get my point. They look and they say, well, what if this isn't true? And so with this super high-tech sci-fi show, they're like, well, what if we bring the sci down, right? I, I'm just spitballing at this point. I don't know. Either way, Sulu... <laughs> this is another reference to Vulcanians, by the way. Sulu has this admittedly amusing line where he's looking around and he's like, I don't know anything about Barnes. In fact, I could be two feet away from something wrong and I wouldn't know it. And he is two feet away from the, the spore plants. It's the first time we see them. Although they don't spray on him for some reason. Probably to maintain suspense. It's okay, they, they understand the script. This is when we see that the barn has no animals in it. We also find out... Uh, th this is a good point. There's no animals in the planet. And at first I'm like, I'm going to hold off on making a point about that. Until, spoiler alert, several scenes later they actually make a reference that there's no insects either. So once again we have a planet with no animals and no insects, but lush foliage and very fertile soil. I've already made all my points about this previously. What I do like is they actually reference this in the episode. Like, they point out how unusual this is and how strange this is and how it's kind of wrong. They don't regard it with regards to the foliage, but rather with regards to the people who should arguably also be dead. Although a planet with no animals and no insects should probably also have no plants either, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, that's a thing. They also, they bring up the fact, we're vegetarians! I was actually going to go off on a rant about this point, about what it would be like to lack any kind of animal or animal product, but, I mean, they actually specifically mention making beans and growing beans, and from what I understand, they don't eat much at all. In fact, they actually reference in the episode that they have a very small garden. Like, really small. Barely enough to sustain the populace, and that's basically it. So, yeah, they probably don't eat that much, and they probably don't work that much, and they probably don't do anything that much. Which is, of course, part of the point, isn't it? So, this is when Kirk gets orders to evacuate the people. Why? This, this actually irritates me a little bit. Starfleet has decided that they cannot stay, because it's too deadly and dangerous for them to stay. You can only survive a week of exposure on this planet that you've been on f for five years. And this is the only argument they ever give, is that you know, it's too dangerous. In fact, Starfleet's reasoning is never explained, and at no point does anyone apparently make an effort to try to explain to Starfleet, hey, these people are still here after five years, even though you'd think that bullet point by itself would be enough for Starfleet to understand what's going on. But no, we're supposed to relocate you. Why? Notice that he actually gives orders to the effect of, we will force you, against your will, to relocate. Why? I, I'm sorry to keep hammering this point in, but this is draconian. Why would Starfleet be so adamant about forcing a colony of people who are doing fine and have absolutely no desire to leave to do so? Now, by the events and the framing of the episode, this turns out to be the correct decision. 
But at the same time, Starfleet had absolutely no way of knowing that. Based on what is known at the time the decision is made, this is messed up. I, I actually have no explanation here. I don't understand why they would insist on, on relocating the colony. I'm curious if you guys can come up with any theories on the matter. Um, either way... I'll have a yawn attack there, excuse me. Spock just kind of goes along with a lot when he's following the woman whose start, name starts with an L. <laughs> the former scientist. The scientist before normally is Layla, there we go. He's like, yeah, sure. She's like, ah, what do you, you want to show me? Peace, life, love. And it's like, that doesn't seem very logical. This is when we see the big thing. And this is when the focus of the episode really comes into fray. Up until now, it's mostly been a Landru. Well, actually, no. Up until now, it's mostly been pretty benevolent. And you know the Star Trek rules. If you go to a planet and it's benevolent, then it's evil. And if you go to a planet and it's evil, then it's benevolent. That's, that's the Star Trek rule, at least in TOS. This is when we see the benevolence veneer kind of pulled away, because the next thing that happens is Spock gets hit with the spores. Now, I like this. Spock is struggling and painful and hurting. Notice she is hurt, upset by that, by the way. She didn't actually want to hurt him. That's key and critical. This isn't quite, you know, Landru and his cult, although it's certainly leaning in that direction. Two cult episodes. Damn. You know, oh my god, it's not supposed to hurt. It didn't hurt us. I am different from you. It's so obvious why it hurts, though, isn't it? It's because his emotional control is being stripped away. Not his emotions, just his control over them. To be perfectly blunt, he should, they should all consider themselves very fortunate that there was a woman that he felt romantically connected to basically right there. Because a Vulcan with all emotional control stripped away is a dangerous and ugly thing. <laughs> Either way, he gets converted and he has a wonderful line, I can love you. In short, that he always did. That emotion was always there. It's just now he is going. He is capable. It's it's like he has permission now. I have the the availability to express this feeling that I feel. This I think is ultimately why Miss Fontana was absolutely right about this because this helps to establish a point that has been hinted at but never codified before. That Vulcans do have emotions. They just don't demonstrate them. We haven't gotten to the point of the whole emotional control thing yet that will eventually become uh, such a key part of Vulcan uh, mythos and, and, and physiology and culture and all that fun stuff. But this is probably the first real brick in that building. And that's good. It helps to establish him, and it helps to establish them. This is also when they deliberately start to spread things. This is when the cult thing really comes in. Um, the transmission is instantaneous, by the way. Do you notice that? They get, push, and it's like, I'm instantly one with the many. They even mention that they are together now. In the original script, there was a hive mind amongst the spores. That's probably why those lines of dialogue are in there. All overt reference to the hive mind is removed. And the fact that the spores originally actually had a sentience and sapience, an intelligence that could reason with people, that has also been removed. Instead, they're just space travelers who came here and settled on this planet because yum, yum, radiation. Sulu, poor Sulu, this is the second time, almost in a row, that he's just been mind-controlled by another cult. Is, is that his job? He's, it's like a step up from Redshirt, right? You know, he, he doesn't get killed, he gets mind-controlled to prove that the situation is serious. This also leaves... 
I don't know. Actually, I don't have much to say about this part of the episode except this makes it a lot more. Well, I use the word malevolent, but that's really the wrong word, isn't it? Forcibly converting people. Uh-uh. You know, at that point, they're basically just borgifying everyone. No, really. That is effectively what they're doing with the spores in this episode, is assimilating the crew of the Enterprise to force them to stay. Note that force thing, by the way. Now, the reason I bring this up, and this is a key and critical point, is I have a feeling if someone who was not currently under the effects of the spores was made aware of the effects of the spores and then given the choice, I imagine there would be people who would be like, yeah, I'll settle there. Naturally, this is not something that's even brought up by the episode, because the episode, and this is where I feel the episode really falls apart, portrays the idea of staying on the planet as absolutely wrong, for the same reason that it was portrayed as wrong back in uh, Return of the Archons, because stagnation is bad. While I'm kind of with that in theory, and I understand the mentality, I have to point out how much I disagree with that. And you're probably thinking, but Lore, hear me out for a second, okay? There's stagnation, which is what was happening in Return of Archons, and then there's retirement, which is what we have here. Or a vacation might be another way to put that. You realize that these spores, in addition to the whole PCP thing, also make, are, make them super healthy make them really in good shape, heal parts of their body that they're otherwise scarred. I would love to spend a week on that planet. Even though I generally hate that kind of mind-altering stuff, just for the ability to fix my body, if nothing else, I would totally endure a week of that hell and then have someone piss me off to get me off the planet afterwards. Absolutely. The ability to use my, my leg properly, the ability to breathe properly, which I've never been able to do because that's something I was born with, Absolutely. Hell, fixing my eyes would be nice, too. My eyes are just slowly getting worse the older I get, because that's just life, right? Never mind the skin issues I have, you know, the scars that'll probably never go away. How many of you would be willing to spend a brief period of time on this planet in order to simply for the, the restorative benefits of it? I imagine it's not a small number of you. I also imagine there's plenty of people who'd be totally cool just settling here. And see, that's kind of my catch. The thing with the Landru thing, this is really the big variance, is they didn't have a choice. You were born into this society, and you were part of the stagnation, part of the cogs in the machine. This planet offers a possibility of being a retirement planet, a place where people can go to recoup, like I just referenced, or to be like, you know what, I want that life. And then they just settle there, and they just live there for the rest of their lives. There's nothing wrong with that as long as it is an informed choice. Now, this, I think, could have made the episode just a little bit better. And by just a little, I mean massively better. Because if the episode had mentioned that some people choose to stay behind, in Defiance of Starfleet Orders, and some people obviously wanted to leave, yeah, absolutely. Because some people now can make an informed decision. We know the effects, we know how it works, we know why it works. Okay, I don't want that. I want to think and be and go and do. I want to build. I want that challenge. And some people just want to play Mega Man with infinite lives and save states. No judgment. That's the point. What do you think? I, l I love hearing your guys' thoughts. I really do. Um, I don't actually have much to say about the rest of the episode. Kirk gets stuck uh, on the bridge. By the way, you notice the shot of the bridge where it's and empty? I'm sure you know that shot because it showed up in Relics over in TNG. I've actually already talked about that. But this is the exact shot that they used in Relics. Also, Admiral Cormac is mentioned in this episode, a first time. He will be actually showing up on camera later in uh, Season 2, I believe. 
So he's got this empty ship, and he's like, well, I'm stuck here. I can't leave. On the one hand, I'm totally with that. A starship shouldn't be operatable by a single person. But on the other hand, the more I think about that, the less that makes full sense. Like, I, why? Now, if you're talking about complex operations, sure, I can understand that. Or maybe combat. But at the same time, like, I can see ways in which even conflict is the kind of thing that you could run with just a small crew. Now, what would really make sense for the large crew size on a ship like this is maintenance. Let me explain my point here. The way I'm picturing it, which is, of course, not how it's portrayed in Star Trek, is two or three people could probably run the Enterprise, but the moment anything goes wrong, they're screwed. You know, they, they, they are not constantly... Like, imagine the people whose work it is to constantly rotate and maintain the dilithium crystals, or to ensure that the power flow is going correctly through, or to make sure that the distribution nodes are actually working. And, and all, the, all the pieces, all the moving parts, all require basically constant maintenance and work in order to keep the whole ship running. So while the actual control of the ship is something that a small group of people could do, that's only under ideal circumstances. At least that's the way I think of it. Obviously the episode and the, the series in general do not posit that, because Kirk flat out says, I can't leave, even though I'm not sure why, since he could just go to the helm and lay in a course, right? Anyways, <clears throat> so then this is actually important. I, I, I hate to nitpick this episode, but the episode shows us a nice, big, large shot of the, the bridge. I already mentioned it. It's the one that shows up in the relics. Then a flower just teleports in, basically, and just shows up and spooshes him. And he's like, oh, I understand. But then it turns out that he, he's terrified. He gets angry at the very thought of leaving his ship. This is something that they were pushing uh, Miss Fontana commented on that. They were pushing very hard in Old Trek. If you'll notice, I haven't been comic on, commenting on it too much because it's kind of a one-note point, but in virtually every episode, Kirk does have what is effectively a love affair with his ship. It's my ship, my crew, my ship, my crew, my ship, my crew, my ship, my crew. Almost every episode they hammer that point in. Now, I'm okay with that. That's why it makes so much sense why he doesn't leave the ship. And, funnily enough, because of that point with Kirk and the upcoming point with Spock, this episode is much stronger for the previous episodes existing. In short, if this was, say, the second or third episode of the series, it wouldn't have anywhere near the impact. We could understand the point, but it wouldn't matter as much because there's no establishment. This is also me kind of making my point about how there's a vague, pseudo-connected part of continuity going on when it comes to the show, which I've referenced before. Usually character continuity, setting continuity, that kind of thing. So... This leads to, I say so a lot, don't I? It's, it's just me gathering my thoughts for my next thing. I can replace it with another word. Bob. <laughs> How about dice? I don't know. I, it's, it's a verbal tick. I try not to. I fail miserably. I do apologize. So, see, I, that one I did on purpose. Kirk's whole bit about not wanting to leave the ship, and of course Kirk being someone who very much wants the challenge, Okay, that lines up. This then kind of makes the point clear. Kirk does not want this. He wants to struggle and cry, strive and march the drum and all those other things. Those, the, like the five analogies he uses in this episode. Okay, that's fine. No judgment. He wants challenge mode Mega Man. I do too. Spock, that's a more interesting one. He brings up Spock. He gets him into a fight. Spock fights back. And what I really love about this scene is not this, it, it takes so much for Kirk to piss off Spock. 
He even comments on it. I didn't realize it would take that much to get under your skin. Jeez. Kirk even references how dangerous what he's about to do is. Point in fact, the fight, if you could call it that, between Kirk and Spock, gets across more... How do I phrase this? It's more deadly than the fight was with Khan, who I remind you is supposed to be stronger than Spock. So, point in this episode's favor. One of the first things Nimoy does is he smashes his hand down to the pipe that Kirk is wielding and just bends it right in his hands there. You know, just getting across that point very quickly and efficiently. And absolutely smashes Kirk in the side and nearly kills him, but, oh right, that's that's when the spores go away and he realizes what's going on. This then leads to them trying to figure out how to fix the whole situation. A brief moment of love, but the really good part, the good part, is Spock beams up What's-Her-Face and talks to her. This is probably one of the better romance of the weeks I've seen in TOS so far, between Spock and her. And I've already kind of commented on why. You know, the, the love that is there, the emotion underneath the service, the control of it. But this really seals it in. The scene between the two of them is actually really good. You'll notice the actress does a good job, too. She segues. Most of the episodes, she's been kind of bland, if I'm being honest. But on purpose, clearly, because she's just portraying someone who's on drugs, to be blunt about it. You know, the PCP thing again. She's just spacing out. Ah. When she starts to act against him, against Nimoy, in the transporter room, you start to see the actress actually seep out there a little bit and see that she does have acting chops. Because as the scene goes on and as the spores fade, her portrayal changes too. Subtly at first, but until it gets to the point where there is a completely different character being played there. This also is a great way to show demonstrably how different people are both on and off the spores. Now I know what you're thinking. We already saw that with McCoy and Spock and Kirk and Sulu. But seeing it from someone who started off on the spores, leaving the spores, helps to hammer that point in and show that... It's not just our crew, it's everyone. That, that's an important point to make. They, say, they also do this with the, the, the leader of the colony earlier, where I mentioned. Uh, excuse me, later than this, not earlier. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, where he's like, we haven't done anything. I, I can't believe we've accomplished so little. It's good to see this contrast. But getting back to the really awesome scene. She mentions how she still loves him. It's so easy to understand. First of all, Leonard Nimoy, I mean, Leonard Nimoy, dude, that, is a, that was a very attractive man. But more to the point, imagine Spock for a moment. Imagine all of the kindness and... Because he is a kind person. He may come across as br- brusque and rude, but he does care. This has been demonstrated up to this point. He is a kind person. He is incredibly intelligent. He's very precise with his mind, and he knows exactly how to present himself. There's a degree of control and, dare I say, power to how he is presented and how he maintains himself at all times. You can't tell me people wouldn't find that attractive. Now, Uhura wouldn't. That's insane. But other women, sure. Or men or whoever. You know, aliens. Alien shows up. And and Spock's just like, fascinating. So this actually lines up perfectly. And we get to see this bit where you'll notice this is actually a really subtle touch. It's so, the camera zoomed so far and you barely can tell, but when she first beams up, she gives him the big hug, and he doesn't reciprocate at all. This then leads to the thing, she grieves, the emotion. The emotions kill the spore pods. I, I don't know if I mentioned this, by the way, but this is just straight out of the cage. You know, once again, mind-altering things are, are, are defeated by violent emotion. Although anger would make more sense than grief in this case. Like, strong emotion in general probably wouldn't do it. It would probably take anger, given what anger does to us chemically, but I'm getting off topic. And then, 
after the when the scene is concluding she gives him another hug and this time he reciprocates it's very subtle it's not like he's like oh but he at the very least does he's not a wooden bore he's not a dummy just standing there that she's hugging instead he just kind of puts his arms lightly around her again it's a nice touch good stuff good character stuff good ideas good concepts this this is this is good i like this i'm putting this on my vhs list absolutely that's funny because I barely remembered this episode. Like, I knew it was the Spock romance episode. Everyone remembers the Spock romance episode. But I didn't remember the rest of it. It's good stuff here. Unfortunately, I don't have much else to share. <sighs> I really wish they were like, hey, you want to go back to the, the Spore Planet? I'm telling you, there's options there. But uh, this could have been Ryza, for God's sakes. Think about that for a second. Instead of Ryza, it could have been Omicron City 7, I think. I guess Ryza rolls off the tongue a little bit better. Got to have that tourism thing, you know. Got to make it nice. Instead of calling it like Arkengia, you need to call it Lore Runner. You know, it's marketing. It's, it's branding. I get it. I get it. Hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, as usual, and my new lighting setup. <laughs> we might have a new lighting setup in a few episodes. I'll see you next time, guys.